So we, we're working through this. Today we're going to talk about Luke chapter 1, Mary the mother of God. Um, and you know, I was thinking this week as I read through scripture and I, I come across a promise of God. I come across, you know, something that I see in Scripture that he's made a promise that it could be applied directly toward me. I want to pause and I want to take note, okay? Old school, when I had a physical Bible, I'd highlight it, okay? Today, you know, you got the app and you can do the highlighting thing on your Bible. And I want to draw those things out. I want to bring attention to the promises God has made for me. And there's a couple promises in particular that he's made that I've really cl- uh, clinged on to. And throughout my life, a couple I wanted to share with you. One of them, and you might know it, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So you see what God promised us there. He says, man, everything in my life, every joy and every sorrow, every detail, every, every moment that I go through, it comes through the sovereign hand of God and he uses it for my good. And, and what, a, what a promise of comfort in times of despair, in times of hopelessness, of sickness, and in death, to know he's using all of it sovereignly for my good. And what about Philippians 1.6? I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So he's going, Justin, I started this in you. When I saved you, what I start in you, I will complete. And, and, and especially in the dry times of my life, when it seems like there's no growth, he says, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to fail you. I have promised to make you like Jesus. And if I, God, started that, I will finish it. And then this one, this is the hardest one for me, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And here's the promise. God is faithful and he will not... Let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So you see what he says there. He says, I will not let you face anything in your life that is bigger than I am. That is stronger than I I am. That I will not give you a grace to overcome, to experience victory in that area. But what I want to talk about this morning is what do we do with these promises when it seems impossible? When there's a chasm between here and there, and it looks like there's no way that we, God is going to be able to get us across to what he's promised us that he would do. And what do we do with that promise that he's using all things for good when it's been two months, six months, a year, five years of pain and sorrow in our lives, and we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel? What do we do with, I'm not going to, I'm going to complete what I began in you when it feels like you are, have absolutely been abandoned by God and you're seeing no growth in your life and you're stuck in the same rut day after day, week after week. What do we do with that promise? What do we do with the promise that he says, I'm not going to give you any temptation that, that I won't give you the grace to overcome when it seems like there's this specific sin in our lives that's owned us, that's haunted us. That's been kicking our heinies. That, that is ready to pounce on us in the moment of weakness. How do we handle these promises when a loved one dies? When we or someone that we care about has been experiencing sickness. And I'm not talking about the cough drop sickness. I'm talking about the life-altering, game-changing kind of sick. When we've been betrayed by someone we love. When we've been rejected by someone we trusted. 
And these promises seem absurd. What do we do? How do we respond? And what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to look at Mary, the mother of God. But we're going to compare and contrast her with Zechariah. Another man in Luke chapter 1. They're they're put side by side. They're both given very similar, very crazy promises by God. And and we're going to see Zechariah, who's very, very old. And we're going to see Mary, who is very, very young. And what we're going to see is they both are given these crazy promises, but the way they handle them are very, very different. And it will help us answer the question, man, in my life, how do I handle the impossible promises of God? So we start with Zechariah. Two options. We can, we can take it the way Zechariah took it. Now, Zechariah was a priest, and he and his wife Elizabeth, we've actually got rare footage. This is actually Zechariah, and I don't know how they got that before the camera was invented, but they did it, and um, there they are. So they spent their entire lives begging God for a child, okay? Here you have this couple who has obeyed God who has kept the law, who actually, Zechariah teaches the law to other people. They've obeyed God their entire life, but he has not given them a child. Now, one thing to understand, they they are both, the Bible says they're old. It doesn't tell us how old, but if the Bible calls you old, you old, okay? Like, you're, you're really, really old. And so, you have to understand that living in this culture at this time, when, if, if, you, if you were barren, if you weren't able to have a kid, that was seen as a curse from God. You understand that? So, in other words, you have done something to to tick God off, and your punishment is that you can't have children. That was the belief in their culture at the time. So imagine the pain and sorrow and frustration of not being able to have children, and then you add to that that everybody in your tiny community thinks that you've done something wrong to make God angry. This is a sore spot. This is a sensitive, raw area for Elizabeth and for Zechariah. But, but as we've been seeing in our stories, there's always that but, right? There's always that plot twist. And of course, because it's this time of year, an angel appears, right? Gives them some news. Verse 13. But the angel said to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So here you have this angel coming to John and says, You're going to have a son, but not just any son. This man is going to be full of the Holy Spirit, he goes on to explain. He's going to come and he's going to help turn the hearts of Israel toward God and prepare the way for the coming deliverer. So, so imagine after all of this longing, you've, you've ached for this thing, you've hoped for this thing for your entire life, and now this angel's coming and telling you, it's here, you're going to have it in your old, old age. Now look at, look at Zechariah's response, verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Notice what Zechariah says, and it's funny. He says, I'm old. He says, my wife is advanced in years. The King James says she's well stricken. Uh, It was a term to mean extreme old age. So he goes, I'm old and my wife is really old, okay? Just throws her under the bus, right? We don't even know. And, and, but, and she is the one that's going to be carrying the baby, so obviously there would be a reason he would emphasize that. But he, here's what just happened. God makes Zechariah a promise, and his immediate response is to tell God why that promise is crazy. Okay, he goes, God, you don't understand. I'm old. My wife's really old. She's like dirt, man. You have, no, have you seen her lately? You know, he just goes on and on. And, and he says, 
you don't understand. We are old, and this makes no sense. So he says, how shall I know this? I need some evidence. I need some proof. I need a sign. As if an angel showing up to you is not enough. He says, tell me more. And I love Gabriel's response here, verse 19. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, (laughs) okay? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. So Gabriel's response is, do you have any idea who you're talking about? My name is Gabriel. I'm an angel. I spend my days and nights praising God on the mountain of the Most High. And I've been sent here from him to you to give you this news from God. And that's your response to me? And so this is what Gabriel tells him. Verse 20, behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you, do, you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So Gabriel gives Zechariah a time out. He says, look, go over in the corner and you're not going to be able to speak until your wife has this son. Now, we pull Zacharias all the time, don't we? If we're honest, in those dark times in our lives when the promise of God is so hard to believe. And what we do is we we list out all these reasons for God why this promise couldn't be true. But God, you don't understand. You don't understand what I've done. You you don't know my past. You You don't know the things in my life that make that promise invalid. As though we're telling God that he didn't realize those things when he made that promise to us in the first place. And what we try to do is we try to, we try to lie to ourselves and we try to discredit the power and the sovereignty of God because of our petty circumstances. And I want to be clear here, because you can read this and you go, oh great, every time I, I doubt God, he's going to make me a mute, right? Or he's going to do something in my life to punish me. But we have to understand here what, what the Lord is doing. He's disciplining Zechariah. He's disciplining him. And catch this, he's disciplining him because he loves him. This is not outside of his causing all things to come together for good. Because you look at what happens nine months later, once the baby is born, and Zechariah is allowed to talk again, look at what he says down in verse 64 of chapter 1. Instantly, Zechariah could speak again, and he began, what's the first thing that comes out of his mouth? Worship. Worship. He starts singing and dancing, and then he starts spitting out poetry, this prophecy, and he's praising his God. So we see in the end, this this discipline in Zechariah's life ended up working out into worship and belief in his God. And listen, there's some times when God responds to our wicked, doubtful, doubting hearts in love with discipline, because he's got to get our attention. Got to get our attention. So, so here we have Zechariah responding to this, to this absurd promise and saying, I don't believe you. I'm going to need some answers first. I'm going to need some evidence first. And it's a heart of pride. It's a heart of doubt that says, God, I don't think you're capable. I don't think you're able. These, my circumstances are too big for your power. And we contrast that with the 13-year-old girl who's also approached by an angel with a crazy promise. Look at verse 26. The sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. We talked about that situation, the context of this betrothal period last week. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
So he comes to Mary, this angel, same Gabriel, same angel, Gabriel, he comes to Mary, and he says, greetings, favored one. And I love Mary's response. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So Mary's reaction, when he comes and says, greetings, O favored one, she goes, who, who me? Are you, are you talking to me? Like, you're calling me the favored one? You're, me? It's like when people come up and say to me all, all the time, hey, good looking. I'm like, oh, oh me? me? Are you, you talking to, oh, you're talking, oh, right. um, She goes, are you, are you, don't ad lib, Justin, just keep going. She goes, she goes you, are you talking to me? You already see the difference here between Zachariah and Mary. Mary. Mary comes out of the gates with this humble response. You're, you're talking to me? You're calling me the favored one of God? And for the record, when, when he says favored one, this word, it means grace. Remember when we said it in the story of Noah? Noah found favor in God's eyes. It's not that he was the good one. He was the only good apple in the barrel. It's that God showed Noah grace. And it's the same exact thing going on here. And this is where the Catholics get it wrong. It's not that Mary is the bestower of grace. She's not a holy one who gives grace out. She is a sinner just like the rest of us who is receiving grace. Receiving the grace of God. So, so here's Mary, the, the one that God has shown grace to. And, and then angel, the angel Gabriel makes this promise to her. He says, that, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found, and here it is again, you have found grace with God. Okay, God in his grace has chosen you. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, this promise is just as absurd as Zacharias, right? It's just as crazy. Here you have this 13-year-old girl in Nowhereville, uh, Nazareth, right? Just a small-town girl. Again, just focus. She's, she's never been with a man before. She's never never once in her life slept with a man, and yet here is God saying, you're going to give birth to a king who's going to have a kingdom that will never end, and oh, by the way, he's God, and he's coming to your belly. I mean, to imagine, this is just as crazy as Zachariah's promise. No one is expecting to be doing their daily chores and have an angel come to them and say, I'm about to impregnate you with the God himself. But Mary's response is very different than Zechariah's. Look at verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, at first, it seems like they have pretty similar responses, right? Both of them are asking God, wait, what? What are you talking about? Asking the angel, what do you mean by this? But, but the tone is very different. Zechariah's is a tone, it's a tone of pride where he's going, prove it. How shall this be? I don't believe you. Where Mary's tone is, you're able, um, I don't know how you're going to do it because I'm a virgin, uh, but you're able. And, and you'll see this difference in the, the angel's response. The angel tells Zechariah, because you don't what? Because you don't believe, I'm going to shut your mouth. But Mary comes in humility. She said, I don't understand this, but I know my God and I know what he's able to do. And so he, he comes and, and, and he actually answers Mary. Now I want to say to us, there's not very often that God gives us explanations for the things that he's doing. We say, why did you let this happen to me, God? Why are you letting me go through this? Most of the time, we're not going to get an answer for that, at least not this side of glory. 
But he does give uh, Mary an answer in this specific situation. He says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. He says, I am the same God that impregnated this very, very, very old woman. And I'm coming to you as a virgin. And I'm impregnating you with Jesus. Now Mary's response to this crazy news. And this, is, this just blows me away. 13-year-old girl. Just remember that. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Do you hear that? Do you hear Mary's response in this? Now think about this for a second. Mary's not an idiot. She knows what's coming, right? Uh, honey, we need to talk. I'm pregnant, right? How, how do you explain that? To, oh no, it was the Holy Spirit. Don't worry, honey. I mean, try that. Try that someday. You don't think she knows? What did we say last week? According to the law, if someone's unfaithful during that betrothal period, they can be pelted with stones until they die. And Mary's very aware of the law. She knows this could end in her death and at best, complete social shunning. Is Joseph going to buy this? Is the community going to buy this? And in this moment, she's going, I don't understand. And I'm scared out of my mind. And none of this makes sense. And God, if you're able to tell me how you're going to do this, great. But if not, okay, okay. And she shows this massive amount of humility here. Look at what she says. I am the servant of the Lord. She says, you are God. You're on the throne. You're in charge. I'm simply your servant. Let it be to me. In other words, whatever your will is, let it be so. Do it. Do it. So let's talk here. Am I responding to God's promises like Zechariah or like Mary? Okay. Now, listen, Joe, uh, one of the jobs of, of the priest, Zechariah, is to read the law out loud to the people of Israel. So every so often, Zechariah isn't just aware of the law. Is not, and, and when we say the law, I mean the first five books of the Old Testament. So Genesis through Deuteronomy. So he is reading, he is instructing the people of Israel about all of these stories about how God made crazy promises, right, to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to all, all throughout the, the, the Jewish history. And he's teaching them about these promises. And yet when the promise becomes personal, when the promise gets spoken directly to Zechariah, what's his response? He fails to believe. He says, prove it. I don't believe you can do it. And I, I don't know about you, I tend to get self-righteous in these moments. I'm like, come on, Zachariah, you moron, right? Like, God is God, right? He's going to do it. He's, he's going to do it. And yet, you know what, what I do when I'm in these circumstances? I do the same thing Zachariah does. And I have two testaments, right? Like, I have a lot more information. I have a lot more history about men and women who have seen God be faithful to his promises. And yet, in the dark nights of the soul, how often... Do we tend in our pain and in our frustration to forget everything God's done in our history, to forget everything he's done in the lives of those that we know, in the, in the stacks of stories 
in the Bible. And we accuse God of being unable to do what he said he's going to do. And God says, okay, okay, I got broad shoulders. I can take that. I can take that. But no one comes into my throne room and shakes their fist at me. And just like with Zechariah, he goes, okay, we got to humble you a little bit. And he comes at us, but he doesn't come with a baseball bat, an uncontrolled rage. He comes to us with a scalpel, like a surgeon, like a skilled surgeon. And he goes, it's going to hurt a little bit, but there's some things I need to remove from your life. So, some, some things that we need to get out of here so that you'll trust me, so that you'll let me be God. And what he's doing is he's growing us tenderly. He's following through on that promise to finish what he started to make us more like Jesus. So how do we get to the point when we can approach God like that humble teenage Mary? And we say, I don't understand. I don't see how you're going to come through on these promises. I don't see how you're using this thing in my life for good. That does not make sense to me. I don't see how I'll ever overcome this specific sin in my life that seems to dominate me day after day. How does faith become our eyes when we can't see? how God's going to come through on his impossible promises. Well, I want to end with a simple question. A simple question that I, I hope can lead us down the path to trusting God even when the promises seem absurd. And this is the question. Do you believe God loves you? And I don't, I don't, I'm not looking for Sunday school answers. Like we all could check the box. But like underneath all of it, do we really believe God's for us? Do we really believe that he loves us? Or do you think God is just some angry tyrant up in heaven waiting to whack you when you make a mistake? Or even worse, that he doesn't even care what happens to you. So what we believe about our God affects every, every nook and cranny of our lives. I remember this one time as a kid, I got busted. I mean, busted. My dad, he goes to grab the teaching stick. I'm not talking about the wooden spoon in the drawer. No, we're going to the big paddle on top of the refrigerator. And he spanked me good, okay? He got me. But I'll never forget turning around and looking at his face. There's tears streaming down his cheeks. And in that moment, there was no doubt in my mind that my dad loved me and that the reason he was disciplining me was because he loved me. And I think there's this, there's this, there's this part of God where, where two things are happening simultaneously. When, when he disciplines us or when he lets us walk through a period of pain, it simultaneously breaks his heart and causes him immeasurable sorrow to see his children, to see his loved ones walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And yet at the exact same time, it brings him immeasurable joy because God, outside of time, he sees what this is producing. He he sees the end and he sees where this is going. And in fact, he loves us enough to let us go through that time because he sees what's on the other side. And in the darkest hours of my life, You know what sustained me? It's not God providing relief 
from these things that I don't think I can stand. It's the Holy Spirit convincing me that God loves me in the midst of those things. So a couple things here. God loves us, and listen, this is so important. He loves us. It's not, it's not a future, cleaned-up version of me that he loves. And this is so vital for us to understand. It's easy. It's one thing to believe God will love me. That when I get my act together, that when I finally get my life living the way it should be lived, then God will love me. It's not God will love me. It's that God does love me right now exactly as I am. And and not only that he loves me, but we also understand that he loves me enough to let me suffer. And this seems counterintuitive, but but he loves me too much to leave me where I'm at. That he's, he's doing this thing in my life. He's doing this thing in my heart. And that there's something bigger here than just me not suffering. That I never go through anything difficult. There is something better for me than comfort. And so he'll let me go to hell and back just to prove, just to, just to remove those things in me that need to be removed. And it's not just that he loves me enough to let me suffer, that he loves me enough to let Jesus suffer for me. And that's the whole thing of this, this Christmas season. That's the whole thing of our lives. That Jesus, that God loved us enough to send his son in this 13-year-old teenage girl to be born and to be brought up to be slaughtered and offer his life for mine. That's how much God loves us. There's no greater proof of his love for us. One of the weirdly most uh, comforting verses that I've ever read, and at first it looks like it would be a strange one to be comforted by, but Isaiah 64, you may know it, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous acts are like what? Are like filthy rags. I remember once I preached on this and I got pretty explicit about what that actually meant in the cultural uh, times. I got talked to by an elder afterward. said, you got to tone it down, buddy. Uh, and, but suffice to say, it was a pretty disgusting image. And it might sound weird. It might sound like, why is this so encouraging? But the reason this is so encouraging is because it shows me that God's love for me is not based on my activities. It's not based on how good I can be in my flesh, on my own. I can do nothing to please God. I am a sinner, and therefore all I can do is sin. And he wants to bring me to the place where I finally let it go. That I stop, stop trying to impress him based on my performance. I love the old hymn. So no more, my God, I boast no more. This is the best obedience of my hands. The best thing you could ever do. Dares not appear before thy throne. Don't bring that on your resume. But faith can answer thy demands. By pleading what my Lord has done. Because when you come before the throne, don't show me your obedience. That's filthy rags in my sight. If you're going to satisfy my demands for holiness, it's going to come one way. And it's not what you've done. It's what Jesus did for you. It's what Jesus did for us. So that's the, the fourth thing, is that God does not love me because of what I can do. In fact, that's the reason we have this Christmas season. He had to send Jesus to do something for us because we could never do what we needed to do to get to God. To have a relationship with God, to be holy enough for God. And so Jesus came and he became holy for us. He kept the law for us. He became our righteousness. He gets our sins and we get his perfection. This is an amazing deal. And finally, we've got to believe that God loves us and nothing will ever separate us from that love. The most beautiful passages in all of scripture, Romans 8. There's nothing in heaven and on earth, nothing that you can do, nothing anyone else can do to separate you from the God's love that he has towards you. Do you believe he loves you? And that's something we've got to answer between us and God. It's a hard issue. 
And if we do, we're going to learn the lesson of Jesus' mother, Mary. And we'll be able to say, in the face of absurd promises, let it be to me according to your word. Whatever you say, whatever you're asking me to do, I'm going to trust. And even if it's the dark night, and I know there's some people in this room today that are going through some tough, tough things, some things that it doesn't look like we're ever going to see the light at the end of the tunnel, that we don't ever see how we're going to be alleviated from this pain, that we don't understand how we're ever going to overcome this sin that's haunting us. But if underneath of it all, we believe that we have a God that's for us, a God that loves us, a God that gave us Jesus inside of us, we can say, whatever you ask, let it be to me according to your word.